Hello and welcome to How to Be Fine. I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I am Jalenta Greenberg. And today we are here with a feedback episode. That's right. Every third week, we share some of the stories you, our listeners, have shared with us about the topics we've most recently covered on the show. Because a lot of you write in, and a lot of you have a really good, interesting things to say. Today's topics are going damp and gua sha. All of you also have some great advice to share with our letter writers. Shall we dive in, Jolenta? Yes, yes. I want to dive in to going damp. Let's get damp. Can you dive into dampness? You're going to like hurt your shoulder if you do that, right? Yeah. It's not very juicy. Yeah. (laughs) But I want to start with some people who wrote in who really like the idea of going damp. Yes. Stephanie says, going from binge drinking to dry is hard, if not impossible, but cutting back with an actionable plan. I'm here for this idea. Like lots of us, I think, I'd never heard this terminology before the episode, but it's not a completely new idea. I think the hashtag going damp gives it a good brand, so to speak. In my opinion, this kind of approach is needed with a lot of things, not just drinking. Our culture has become so all or nothing. You're either addicted to your phone or a Luddite. You either binge watch Succession or you've never seen an episode. The idea that you can move from one extreme to something in the middle is not new, but it needs a comeback. Yes, yes, yes. Stephanie, we wholeheartedly agree with that, especially after all the years we live by self-help books where everything is either yes. black or white, right or wrong, bad or good. You're either failing or doing it my way. Yeah, and the world is not really set up with such hard and fast binaries. There's mm-hmm. a lot of stuff in the middle, and most of the stuff in the middle is pretty great. So, yeah. Right. Moderation has been a thing before going damp, but like, I'm always here for a good rebrand. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth agrees. She has this to say, I feel like going damp is just called responsible drinking, but very few of us who grew up in the 80s and 90s learned about it. In all the Just Say No and Dare programs, schools gave us all the information on hard drugs, but not on the one substance most of us will encounter, alcohol. Right. And also, I feel like this goes back to the like all or nothing thing where it's like, just say no. Like we were taught a lot of like, just never touch alcohol or drugs. And then once we touch it, we're like, I guess we go all in. I don't know what to do. Yeah, you're going to do something totally bananas, like try to drive your car off of the top of a parking garage because you had one puff of marijuana. Yeah, the all or nothing stuff there. Yeah. There's a joke on Strangers with Candy where a girl tries drugs and like then she immediately tries to shove herself through like a keyhole. (laughs) It's very silly. But like that's sort of like the messaging we were taught where it's like you walk past someone smoking weed and then you're going to be cleaning your bathroom until 3 a.m. like a full addict. Yeah. And um, it's just the gateway drug. Before you know it, you're going to be huffing spray paint, too. It's just all downhill from there. Yep. Yep. (laughs) A lot of you also wrote in because you have drinking guidelines for yourselves already in place, much like the damp community. Bess says, I don't allow myself to have a drink unless I've had more water than usual during the course of the day. I also keep track of my mood. If it's a depressive day, then I don't drink because alcohol tends to make my brain amplify how I'm already feeling. Oh, love that self-awareness. Yeah, well, usually if I'm depressed, that's when I want to drink. But (laughs) interesting, Bess, taking stock of how you feel, not just drinking to kill the feels. 
wow, so adult. Mm -hmm. Deanna has this to say, every time I catch myself saying, I need a drink, I'll stop drinking for a week just to make sure I'm not relying too much on alcohol. Nice. I like that. Rwanda writes in to say, I'm not a big drinker generally. Two drinks a week would be a lot for me. But if I'm out at a wedding or somewhere where I know I'll drink more, I always alternate water with alcohol. I hate the thought of having a day wasted to a hangover. So that's really my motivation, not trying to moderate my drinking. Rhonda, I really like your reasoning there. I don't like a day wasted either. Or if I'm right. going to waste a day, I want to do it deliberately. Like today is a day I'm just going to veg out and watch movies. I want it to be something I'm doing with purpose, not because of my bad behavior. So totally, I get it. I get right. it. And I think that alternate water with alcohol, one glass of water for one drink that's my mom's rule. I don't know if it fully helps, but I think it does. Like, you're just staying hydrated, right? Yeah. Karen has this to say, I'm a one-drink-a-day kind of gal. Meanwhile, my husband only drinks Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and he probably has two on each of those days. So we're having similar amounts, but spaced differently. It's interesting how many different approaches there can be to alcohol and barring dependency issues. It really is a to-each-their-own issue. Totally. Like even yeah. going damp can look very different from one person to the next. Going damp for someone could be just having one drink a night as opposed to two or something. Or mm -hmm. it can be when you go out once a week only having like three drinks with water in between and no drinking yeah. on the weekdays. Like going damp can be a billion different things. Absolutely. And some of you wrote in to say that you have been essentially forced to go damp less out of choice than out of necessity. Yeah. Anita says, my drinking has been up and down throughout my life. The last few years, it was becoming a daily habit, and I knew I should cut back, but didn't. Then I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. The medications I take don't agree with alcohol, so I cut back a lot. It was easier than I expected it to be. The pharmacist told me that an occasional drink is okay as long as my blood work is okay, so now I've gone damp. When I do have a drink, I enjoy it much more. On my birthday, I had the best martini of my life, but only one. Mm. Anita, I can relate to you a bit. Um, sorry about your diagnosis. That is so difficult. Not comparing lupus to cancer at all, but I was told I shouldn't drink on my medication either. I, too, was surprised by how easy it was, but I think having a focus of, like, you have to to get better makes it a little easier. It's, it's a different kind of motivation, and I totally agree with you where when you do have a drink, you enjoy it so much more. I had a beer the day they declared Biden president, and I hadn't had a drink in probably months to a year before that, and it was the best beer I had in my life. <laughs> like, I was like, oh my gosh, beer tastes so good. Like, yeah, <laughs> it makes it much more special and, and tastes really good when you, when you do it sparingly. Mm -hmm. And Simone also had to cut back on drinking because of health reasons. Simone says, I have never been a big drinker apart from my very wild college days. But ever since I turned 40, alcohol has messed with my sleep. So I barely have it anymore. Maybe one glass of wine a month. I have more on vacations, especially with my in-laws who drink more. But for my sleep, I had to cut back. Yeah, sleep is real. Yeah, 
And I, I look back on my wild youth where I did not sleep enough, you know, college days and so yes, on. Yeah. And I just think, I don't know how I did that. I really like sleeping now. I want my full night's sleep. We were hardcore messes. But yeah, <laughs> getting older makes you go like, oh, no, I want sleep. And I want to like make the most out of my days. I can't have my sleep <laughs> messed with. I know for Brad, he snores way more when he drinks, which leads to our sleep for both of us. Ah, uh, yes. That sounds like my household, too. Oh, yeah. fun. <laughs> you can go think about our husband snoring. And we're going to take a quick break. But reminder, you can always share your stories with us or send us your advice questions. You can email us at kristenangelinta at gmail.com or you can weigh in on facebook.com slash groups slash kristenangelinta. Coming up, we come face to face with your gua sha comments. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. We're back. And now, Jolenta, it is time to talk about gua sha. Yes. Let's start with all of you who are fans of gua sha. Kreska says, I have lymphedema in my face, neck, chest, and arms from both chemotherapy and a double mastectomy. While seeing a physical therapist twice a week, the swelling would go down and stay away. But about two months after my PT schedule came to an end, the swelling came back. My hands are arthritic, so I cannot do self-massage for an effective amount of time. And I struggle with even and consistent pressure. I spoke to my doctors about using a gua sha tool to help with self-massage and do so under their care. It's only been a short amount of time, but I can say it already makes self-massage much easier and, more importantly, more enjoyable. I haven't seen a definitive result yet, but I do find the process relaxing. Please note, I am not a medical professional. Do not take my experience as medical advice. Always talk to your doctor before starting any self-treatment plan. Love that disclaimer. Yes. And I love that this has been working for you, Greska. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what you point out here about arthritic hands, about being able to apply even and consistent pressure, mm -hmm. even just about reaching certain spots. Some of us just can't reach certain spots with our hands as easily right. as we would like to, right? So um, I'm glad this is working for you. And yeah. I hope that eventually you do see definitive results. You say you don't have them yet, but you say that at least it's relaxing for you. And that's good. Right, right. More enjoyable equals good. Yes, yes. Lena is also a gua sha user. Lena says, I love this. I have a neurological condition that causes pain around my face and neck, which causes further muscle tightness and pain. Gua sha was introduced to me via several sources. I find it an incredibly valuable tool for managing my chronic pain, especially since ongoing physical therapy or massages are out of my budget. I'm just going to interject here and say, yes, it can be very expensive. Yeah. I'm also half Chinese, and I appreciate having another small connection to our history and culture. I usually pick a jade tool because of the high value of jade in Chinese and Chinese-American culture. Plus, it's just pretty to me. But I personally don't believe that the crystal type has any particular value. I'm excited to check out the Asian-owned brands that you mentioned on the show because I need a new tool. For chronic pain sufferers, I say... It's worth giving a try. I love that it connects you to your culture, Lena. And you are right. Jade is really gorgeous. It is. I, I 
have a jade necklace myself because it's part of Dean's culture, the New Zealand culture. Oh, right. Yes. I've seen that necklace. Yeah. And up until this very moment, I never thought of myself as a crystal person, as you know, Jolenta. Oh, my gosh. Maybe I am because I have this necklace that I love so much. But I also think Lena is your kind of person because she says, I personally don't believe that the crystal type has any particular value. So, But it's pretty. Yeah, it's more I, agree, about the massage. I agree with her. It is pretty. It's very but pretty. it is. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Marlon wrote in to say, I recently tried gua sha after ignoring all of the chatter for the last year or so. As many of us experience, my face has started changing from aging and I wanted to try something new. Instead, I was surprised to feel differences in my sinuses. I've long had sinus issues that lead to migraines, which then triggers my chronic neck and shoulder issues. I'm not saying gua sha is a miracle, but reducing my sinus issues has been incredibly helpful. If anything beauty-wise comes out of it, that would be a welcome bonus. Marlon, I got to say, one of the things I was taught when I was a kid was massage those sinuses if you have sinus issues. I am somebody who has always had respiratory and sinus issues. And it was absolutely something I was taught to do. Never with a gua sha tool, but just right. sinus massages. You know what I'm talking about, John. Yeah, Linda, like right? with your fingers. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, if you yeah. went to like an allergist and suffered from any sort of chronic sinus infection, I feel like in the 90s, they were showing you how to like poke at your face to massage they were your all sinuses. about it. Yeah. yeah. Do that and then have somebody lightly pound on your back. Yeah, to like break up the phlegm. Yes. So those two things. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They were the 90s. That was my life in the oh my 90s. Gosh. Just yeah. having people pound on my back and rubbing my face. <laughs> right, right. And gua sha is another way to do that. One of you wrote in because you wanted to speak to Kristen's skepticism about gua sha. Yes, I, I am a bit of a skeptic. And Danielle had this to say. Some countries publish unusually high proportions of positive results for certain treatments, while other countries will have totally different results. For example, a study published by the National Institutes of Health found that of trials published in England, 75% ranked acupuncture test treatment as superior to a placebo or no treatment. Meanwhile, the results for China, Japan, Russia, and Taiwan were 99%, 89%, 97%, and 95% respectively. Publication bias is a possible explanation for these differences, and researchers undertaking systemic reviews should consider carefully how to manage data from different countries. I think that's really interesting because Mm -hmm. what you were saying, Jolenta, is some studies say it's the be-all, end-all, and some studies don't. And this, you know, kind of accounts for possibly why some of those study results may be different. Yeah, 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 yeah. I never really thought about the country of origin where the studies are coming out of and how that might impact results. Yeah, absolutely. Finally, Kate has this question, which I think a lot of us have. I honestly just want to know if all the before and after photos I've seen online from gua sha enthusiasts are doctored. Every one of these ladies look like they've had full-on neck lifts or facelifts. Their tightened jawlines, complete absence of sagging, and wrinkle erasure seem too good to be true. Very good question. Kate, I, after this episode, also looked online at all of these faces. And yes, I agree with you. They all look like they've had full-on facelifts. Like, fully, like, you went from looking like, I don't know, that woman who has been waiting for 83 years to throw her necklace into the sea in Titanic, you went from looking like that to one of the Kardashians because you did gua sha? Really? You mean Is old rose? <laughs> yes, thank you. That's the simpler way to say it. Old rose, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
But you've seen these too, right, Jill? I've right. these before and after pictures. My theory is I've sort of always taken these photos with a grain of salt. I sort of applied like back to the 90s. We're always going back to the 90s in this episode. Um, I've sort of applied the same logic I applied to like those Jenny Craig before and afters or like Weight Watchers or Slim Fast before and afters you'd see in commercials where you're like, that person looks so incredibly different after four weeks. How did they do that? And I feel like it's a mixture of like, Lighting, slightly mm. different poses, different like muscles being engaged in the face, even makeup and like probably a hint of filter. I don't think it's a full lie, but I do think I do think the effects are magnified through like tricks. Yeah, I'm with Kate here where I just want to meet somebody in real life where we saw each other last fall and then I see that friend in the spring and I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Right, And right. it was all gua sha. I would love to see that with somebody I know and trust. Yeah, not with like TikTok before and afters. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. Well, while all of you go and furiously Google before and after faces, we're going to take one more quick break. But when we're back, y'all have some excellent ideas for our advice seekers. We are back with some additional advice for our recent letter writers. Yes, for the letter writer whose friends won't stop with their toxic diet talk and even policing other people's eating, a lot of you had things to say. Totally. Karen wrote in to say, the question of how to deal with diet talk really struck a nerve with me. I'm fat and I've been working really hard since the beginning of the pandemic to repair my relationship with food. My diet is fairly healthy and I exercise regularly. My body is just the size it is. My usual response to this kind of conversation is, I don't participate in toxic diet culture bullshit. It doesn't bring me joy or make my life better in any way. It often saddens me deeply when I see the effect it has on other people in my life. A very good friend of mine went on a diet because she believed she needed to lose weight and compared herself to her slimmer, also very loving and supportive wife. She now has a full-blown eating disorder, which she is receiving professional support for. One of the rules I live by is I do not comment on other people's bodies. Even when meant kindly and positively, I believe it does much more harm than good, whether the situation is weight gain or weight loss. Karen, I love that you gave an actual script for us to use. (laughs) Yes. Um, I'm going to just repeat that script line. I don't participate in toxic diet culture bullshit. It doesn't bring me joy or make my life better in any way. That's something that I would have to work on how to deliver in my own Kristen way, but I do <laughs> like the script. I like the I script. Could I could take it just good. as is, but yeah, you <laughs> would deliver it like with a bit softer edges. Yeah, but I, I do like a script. I'm all about a script if you can give totally, us a script. Totally, totally. And I love just sort of reminding whoever you're talking to, like, it doesn't bring me joy. It's like, oh, right, this isn't enhancing your life the way you think it's like going to. Yeah, exactly. And Laura seconds that. Laura says, my mom's been yo-yo dieting for 40 years. Every time she goes on a crash diet and tells me proudly about her 1,000 calories per day, it makes me want to scream inside. So last summer, I made a new rule. I told my mom, I love you, I support you, but I cannot hear about the dieting anymore. 
No more letting me know if you've been, quote, good or bad or what you've had to eat in the last two days. I can't take it. And it worked. In the last year since that rule, there's been no more anxiety and frustration talking with my mom, no more 10 to 20 minute monologues about her diets, and no more worrying on my end. Wow. I love that. Another great script. Just a hard, firm boundary, too. Yes. It's like, this isn't allowed with me. Yeah. It doesn't fly. Love that. Excellent. And Kathy learned the hard way when it comes to talking about diets and how it can affect other people. Kathy says, a friend had to make an angry Facebook post stating that her eating disorder that I didn't even know about could be triggered by other people talking and posting about their own weight and their own diets. It was a real wake-up call, and now I don't. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. You have no idea who around you is suffering or struggling with food-related disorders, eating-related disorders, and you have no idea how you could be uh, harming them when you sort of participate in this, like, negative feedback loop cycle of, like, posting about your body, posting about diets and... About your dissatisfaction, about your own sense of sizeism. Yeah, about what you want to change. Yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah, you have no idea. You could be hurting a friend that you didn't even know struggled with this. Yeah. Now, shifting gears, a lot of you, a lot of you wrote in about the adult who is on the fence about getting assessed for autism after her preteen was diagnosed with it. And I'm just going to say point blank, almost all of you disagreed with me and Jolenta. (laughs) Jolenta and I were saying, why not? Go ahead. Do it. You said yourself in your own letter that you would not be able to live without knowing the answers. And we're like, if you can't live without knowing the answers, go get the answers. Go for it. But a lot of you, a lot of you are smarter than us, and (laughs) and we really appreciate your writing in to explain why maybe we were wrong. (laughs) Totally. Juliet says, as someone who has been wondering for years about my own potential autism, I appreciated your positivity, but did get a little scared by the zero drawbacks comment and general enthusiasm. While I don't know what's best for this specific person, I know for me as a queer person who might want to adopt in the future or for someone who can see themselves having to fight for parental rights, an autism diagnosis can be scary. For a lot of people, it's still hard to believe that you can be autistic and care for a child. Even if this is keeping me from potentially helpful tools, I've made my peace with it. I love surrounding myself with autistic and neurodivergent people who don't care whether I have a diagnosis or not. And thanks to them, I now strongly identify with the term neurospicy, which, although not as helpful, is way more fun. I'm saddened that I had to be a downer about this, but I really hope this letter writer and every other questioning person finds the answer that works for them. Juliet, first of all, you're not a downer. Yeah. You're not a downer. You're, you're yeah. actually you're a smarter. So helpful. You're smarter yes. than us in this arena. <laughs> you are spicy and helpful. We really appreciate your thoughts on this. And these are things that obviously Jolanta and I weren't thinking about when we gave our answers. We were not thinking about this. Totally. I wasn't thinking about that aspect of life at all and how like sometimes with a diagnosis comes a label, comes stigma, comes difficulty down the line. You're totally right. Yeah. And that's totally valid for our letter writer whose kid is still a preteen. This isn't a kid who's, you know, 21 years old and already out of the house. This is somebody where there could be custodial rights issues and so on involved. So 
Juliet, thank you so much for writing in to share your story with us. We really totally. appreciate it. And Riona has this to say, I want to preface this by saying I am not autistic myself. The neurodivergent community would be the best place to go for advice on this topic. I'd recommend thriving underscore autist or adult underscore autism on Twitter or look for the hashtag actually autistic. But my understanding is that within the autistic community, self-diagnosis is perfectly valid, although the support of a professional can be helpful or necessary to access support or accommodations in work. In fact, many autistic people do not like the term diagnosis in relation to autism because it medicalizes something that they see as an identity, not an illness. There is so much to this topic. I think the important thing is to search out neuroaffirmative healthcare providers and listen to voices from the community. I'd recommend the book, The Little Book of Autism FAQs. That's great advice. Yes. And I love that Riona's suggesting, you know, learn from the community, take part in it. You don't need a doctor to like put a stamp on a chart for you to seek this stuff out and see if anything resonates with you. Such great advice. Yeah. Talk to people who are actually in the community. That's probably what we should have done, Jolenta, before answering that question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not just running with it like we're doctors or a specialist in anything like this. Yeah, because we're not. But that's why we have all of you listeners here to help us. And we Truly. still appreciate all of you who wrote in this week. All of you were so generous with your thoughts and your stories. Yeah, that is why we do these episodes. So we can get points of view that are more informed, that have lived experience. And we're so grateful that you share your stories with us. And that's it for this episode of How to Be Fine. Huge thank you to our executive producer, Nora Ritchie, our producer, Chantel Holder, and our composer and engineer, Casey Holford. For those who've asked, by the way, Nora Ritchie is not one of Lionel Ritchie's secret daughters. Reminder, you can always follow us on Instagram. Jolenta posted her gua sha tools there so you can actually see what her tools actually look like. Our Instagram handle is at howtobefinepod. And if you haven't already, why don't you just look down at your phone and rate and review us in your pod player, wherever you are currently listening. It helps people find the show. Another way to help people find the show is to just tell them about the show. Maybe tell a friend. Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I am Jolanta Greenberg. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. Until then, stay fine. Stitcher.